Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In today's sermon, Reverend Peter Yonker will be talking about the veneer of civilization, that force that causes good, decent people to act in monstrous ways, that desire to act in just a chaotic manner just for the sake of chaos. And the question is, are we destined to continue acting this way? Here is Proclaiming the Lord's Death, Set Free, by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. I'll be reading from chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. That's found on page 1753 in your pew Bible, 1753. And just to remind you, during Lent, uh, our series is called Proclaiming the Lord's Death. And we're focusing uh, pretty focused, in a very focused way, we're focusing on Christ's cross and its implications, what it means for our lives, what it's meant throughout history. And last week we talked about the cross, as you will, call, as you will recall, as a payment of debt. So we sin, our sin accrues a debt, that debt becomes impossible for us to pay, and on the cross Jesus pays the debt, Jesus pays the penalty. That is part of the good news of the cross. So now we come to Romans 7. And as we hear Romans 7, you, you will hear that Paul is talking about his predicament. He's looking for help from Jesus. And Paul's predicament in this passage isn't just Paul's predicament. It's the human predicament. But before I read it, let me ask you this. Is Paul's problem in this passage debt? Is it the debt of sin that he's looking to have paid? Or is it a different problem? Okay? Keep that question in mind as we read. Starting at verse 7. What shall we say then, says Paul? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. So what he's saying there is that the state of my heart is such that um, when the law says do not covet, there's something in my heart that says, ooh, coveting, that sounds like fun, okay? For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. Through the commandment, it put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, in other words, in order that, that I might know how bad my sin is, the depths of my own sin, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual sold as a slave to sin. 
I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. But it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do the good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. I think it was three years ago that Ken Burns, the great documentary filmmaker, released a a 10-part documentary series on PBS called The Vietnam War, And it was this sort of epic uh, look, historical look, at the effect of that war, both on the age where it was waged in the 60s and 70s, but also its continuing effect on, on society today. And one of the episodes of that 10 part series had a really interesting title. It was called The Veneer of Civilization. The Veneer of Civilization. Have you ever heard that phrase before? What it refers to is the fact that nice people, decent people, God-fearing, church-going people, under extreme pressure, under extreme circumstances, can suddenly find themselves doing things that are monstrous and cruel. The veneer of civilization is lifted and something savage will come to the surface. And as you can imagine, during the Vietnam War, there were lots of examples of this sort of thing. Now, the documentary isn't just about this. The documentary talks about lots of acts of heroism and goodness, and, and some of the best parts of, the human, of human nature come forward in this documentary. But as is true in all wars, it also tells these terrible stories of exactly the opposite. And so Burns will, will interview these men We're talking about what it was like when they were kids, which is what they were in the war. And you can see the trauma on their faces as they talk about what they saw and in a lot of cases what they did. And it's things like rape and killing civilians and burning villages and just generally doing things that scared them. The veneer of civilization is lifted. One of the soldiers talks about how when you're in the middle of all this, sometimes something like a savage joy, a joy in savagery, would take you over. 
This picture of otherwise decent people doing things that are cruel and savage is a good way to get at what Paul is talking about in our passage. I asked you before I did the reading, is is Paul's problem in Romans 7 that he feels indebted, that he has a debt that needs to be paid? And I hope that you could see that as we read that that's not Paul's problem at all. At no point in this passage does Paul talk about a debt that needs to be paid or Christ paying that debt. That is, that's truly part of the cross. We heard about that last week. But that's not Paul's problem in this passage. Paul's problem in this passage is not indebtedness. It's something more like possession. He's enslaved. A dark power has taken over his heart. A dark power has taken over his soul. And no matter what he tries to do, he feels he cannot break free. There's this dark power, and the name of that dark power is sin. It's important to hear how Paul talks about sin in this passage, because the Bible talks about sin in two different ways. And if you really want to understand the meaning of the cross, you've got to understand both senses of the word sin in Scripture. Often in scripture, the, hear about sin in a more conventional way. And this is more the way I talked about it last week. So a sin is an individual act of wrongdoing that you or I commit. I lie to my parents. That's a sin. I mean to my sister. That's a sin. We all commit a lot of these individual acts of wrongdoing and those build up into a debt that must be paid. But that's not how Paul is talking about sin here, right? In those kinds of sins, who's the agent of the sin? Who's the doer of the sin? Who's the one in charge? It's me. I'm the agent. The sin is the result. But in this passage, who is the agent? Sin is the agent. And Paul is the object. And the first kind of sin, I'm the one who does it, and I create it. And this kind of sin, sin living in Paul is causing him to do things that he does not want to do. Look at verse 8, for example. Sin produced in me every kind of coveting. Sin did it. Sin awoke something in Paul. Verse 11. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, put me to death. Sin is the agent taking hold of Paul and making him do things he doesn't want to do. In verse 17 and 20, Paul says it outright. It is no longer I who do it, but sin living within me that does it. Something has taken hold of Paul's heart and is causing him to do things that he does not want to do. If last week we talked about the results of sin, the mess that it makes out there, the debt that it incurs out there, now we're talking about the engine of it. The power that takes over our hearts. Now we're getting to the dark depths of the human problem. So sins aren't just individual acts of wrongdoing. Sin is a power that has the capacity, a tool of the devil that has a capacity to take over our hearts. And that's why in scripture, sometimes it doesn't just talk about us committing sins. It talks about us being in sin. You don't just do sin, you're in it. It possesses you. St. Augustine wrote eloquently about this kind of sin. Writing as a middle-aged man, he looked back on his youth in the third century in Italy. And 
when he thought about how he behaved as a young man, some of the things he did as a young man, it was this, this made it clear to him how this Romans 7 sense of sin as a power was active in his life. And there's one story in particular in which this came to light for him. When he was young, Augustine was in a gang, a third century Italian gang. And what that meant is he, he used to run around with the boys and he did what, it's, it's interesting, it's, it's not all that different than what kids do today. He'd play sports, he'd flirt with girls, and he'd get into mischief. Well, one day he and his buddies are walking down the road and feeling alive, and they saw a pear tree. It wasn't his pear tree, it was the pear tree of a neighbor, but it was full of really good-looking ripe pears. And on impulse, they decided they would steal those pears. So him and his buddies climbed the tree, took all the pears, and walked off down the road with all the pears from that pear tree, laughing together as boys will do. Did they eat those pears? No. They took maybe one bite and threw them to the pigs. This is what, this is what Augustine says about his crime. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O oh God, such was my heart. Reflecting on the act, Augustine was appalled because he realized that what drew him to it was not the taste of the pears. He didn't even like pears. What he liked was the taste of transgression. It was the evil that drew him. There was something in his heart that was inclined towards the evil. Now, maybe some of you out there are saying, oh, come on, this guy's got an overactive conscience. You know, boys will be boys. He stole some pears. What's the big deal, man? But if Augustine were here, he'd say, no, 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 you, you're missing my point. The stealing pears, of course, is not the worst crime ever, but the point is where my heart was. I wanted to do this thing because it was forbidden. There's something in my heart that loves evil, that loves transgression. Why did Augustine steal the pears? And I'm going to use this word soberly and in the biblical sense. Augustine stole the pears for the hell of it, for the chaos of it. Such was the state of his heart, which is the state of the human heart. Back in 2014, my good friend and his wife were walking through Alger Heights. It was a warm spring night. It was about 9 o'clock. It was dark. They were enjoying the warm weather, and they were walking. And they're about a, a block from Seymour Church. Many of you know that area. That's a fine neighborhood. And they were approached by two young people, and one of those young people pulled a gun and proceeded to rob my friends. And that wasn't just the gun, it was a physical robbery. They grabbed his wife and they were quite physically abusive with her, took her purse, and then they went off. And my friends were leaving. They thought the robbery was over. They were about a block away when they heard a pop. The guy with the gun had turned and shot at them, and my friend was hit. The bullet went right through his abdomen and he was taken by the ambulance to the hospital where he had emergency surgery. He was blessed, 
The bullet missed the major organs, but he still lives with the trauma of that today. Later, they caught the guy. They caught the guy who shot my friend. And they asked him, why did, why did you do that? The robbery was over. You had the purse. Everything was done. Why did you fire the gun? And he said, target practice. He might just as well have said, for the heck of it. Augustine in his pear tree, the Algerheide shooter with his target practice, those young kids in Vietnam carried along by a savage joy, all of these behaviors point in the same direction, and it's the direction that Paul is pointing in Romans 7. In my inner being, in my mind, I may delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war on me and making me a prisoner to the law of sin. And any of us who've ever been carried along by anger or bitterness or grief or lust, any of us who've been in the grip of addiction or a really strong temptation that we cannot shake, we know exactly what Paul is talking about. Underneath the veneer of civilization is something terrible. And when we feel sin's power like this, we cry out as Paul did, oh, what wretched people we are. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Jesus gives his life on the cross, he does not just pay a debt, which he certainly does. He fights a battle. He goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil for the hold on our heart. He goes down into that deepest place and he puts the principalities under his feet. He defeats the powers. He liberates us. He frees us. He makes us new creations. It's not just about paying a debt. It's about winning a victory at the darkest place in our heart. It's not just that Jesus paid all my sins with his precious blood. It's also that he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. So that we're no longer in sin, but we're now in Christ. When you think of Jesus going to the cross and fighting this battle to liberate our hearts from the power of sin, I think one of the places where you see that fight most clearly is in the way Jesus endured mockery. We all know that on the cross, Jesus was mocked, right? Hey, Mr. Miracle. Why don't you come on down from that cross and maybe I'll be impressed with you. No? Ha! They put a purple robe on him, pressed a crown of thorns in his head. Oh, your majesty, let me pay you homage. They spit in his face. They blindfolded him. Oh, your prophetic greatness, prophesy to me. Who hit you? They hit him in the face. Why did they mock Jesus? Why did they do that? He was already convicted. He was already going to the cross. They knew they'd won. Right? He was going to suffer already. Why the mockery? What purpose does it serve? You know the answer. They mocked him for the hell of it. For the pure chaos. It was cruelty for cruelty's sake. 
And when Jesus endures that mockery, he goes right down to that hellish part of our human nature, to that cruel part of our human nature, and he does mortal combat with the devil. And he defeats him. He takes the insults, he takes the cruelty, he takes the blows, and he returns it with love and forgiveness. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He takes the acid of the devil's hate, which scorches everything it touches, and he returns it with the living water of his grace and his love. And so now that, that hold that evil had in our heart is broken. We are not in sin. If we are baptized, we are in Christ. And that doesn't mean we don't sin. That doesn't mean that sometimes we don't burst out with our old nature, but it is no longer who we are. We do not belong to that old nature anymore. We belong to Jesus. We are in him, and little by little, he is making us into new creations. I started this sermon with a Vietnam story that was sad. Let me finish off with a, with a different kind of Vietnam story. And it is a story that I've told before, but I told it in an evening service, which means that most of you have never heard it before. And even if you have, it's such a perfect story to illustrate what the power of the cross does. It's a story of Napalm Girl. Napalm Girl, her, her name is Kim Fook. She is uh, 50 something years old now. She lives in a suburb of Toronto. But uh, we call her Napalm Girl, and you may know her as Napalm Girl because she's the the girl in that famous photograph. Uh, if, you know the, if you know anything at all about the, the Vietnam War, you'll remember this famous photograph. Um, she's walking away from, she's nine years old in this photograph. She's walking away from a Vietnamese village and her arms are sort of stretched out like this and she's completely naked because the clothes have been burned off her body, right? And she's suffered terrible burns. Her village has just been napalmed and it, you can see it behind her. It's just engulfed in flame. And she's coming out of this village screaming. And beside her, there's another boy who's also screaming. And behind them, there's some soldiers going about their business. So it's one of those, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning picture. It's a terrible picture, if you can bring it to mind. It's one of those pictures that makes you deeply um, sad about the human condition and the things we can do to each other. Well, Kim survived that attack. And uh, she had terrible burns and, as you can imagine, terrible emotional scars, right? Both physically and emotionally, she was a mess. And as she grew up, uh, she became bitter, she was suicidal, she really, really struggled. Then one day, 1982, she went to a little church on Christmas Eve in Vietnam, and the minister preached a sermon and told her about Jesus. How he'd come to this earth for sinners, to change people's hearts and how he died on the cross for broken hearts. Something moved inside of her and she was changed. Here's what she says. I know what it's like to experience terror, to feel despondent, to live in fear. I know how wearying and hopeless life can be sometimes. After years in the spiritual wilderness, I felt a kind of healing that can only come from God. My circumstances can still be challenging, but my heart is healed. 
The love of the crucified Jesus, Jesus who knows what it's like to be tortured and stripped and live in the middle of the most horrific things human beings can do to each other, that Jesus went down to that traumatized heart and changed it. And if you belong to him, if you are in Christ, that same Jesus is in your heart changing it. And if you don't know Jesus, that same crucified man can go down into your heart and change it too. Who shall rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus, we open up our hearts before you again this morning. We know these hearts belong to you, but Lord, you know all the places in which they are still very much a work in progress. Lord Jesus, send the power of your healing love, your transforming Holy Spirit deep into the dark places of our hearts and continue to make us new creations. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.